Hi everyone and happy Christmas. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and a senior research fellow at UK in a Changing Europe. So I'm absolutely delighted to be hosting the first ever joint podcast between IFG and UK ICE to bring you our joint assessment of where we are on Brexit. You surely didn't want two Brexit podcasts uh, to highlight your run up to Christmas. Not sure whether this is the Christmas present you didn't really know you wanted or the think tank equivalent of the World War One Christmas truce football match. But IFG Live <laughs> meets Brexit and beyond for one night only. So I'm delighted to be joined by four of the nation's top Brexit watchers. From the Institute for Government, uh, the three J's, Joe Marshall, Jess Sargent and James Kane. Only one from UK and a changing Europe, but what a one. Our very own star of News Quiz, the rock star professor himself, waiting for the call from Have I Got News For You. It's the ubiquitous Professor Arnand Menon. So let's get going. We had the joint report Christmas 2017. We had the meaningful vote Christmas 2018. We had the election and withdrawal agreement Christmas 2019. And who cannot forget Christmas Eve 2020, the trade and cooperation agreement being unveiled on Christmas Eve and business given a week to get ready, a week that they were all planning to get all their Brexit uh, actions into gear. So, Jess, the 64 million euro question, can we bank on a Brexit free Christmas to let us all get on with tucking into our turkey or nut roast delete to taste? <laughs> so I think this year we will be getting a Brexit-free Christmas, unlike last year where I was trying to make a beef Wellington on Christmas Eve and hoping that the TCA text didn't drop at a crucial time. Um, I think uh, Brexit watchers will be getting a well-deserved break. The only thing that could happen is potentially on the Northern Ireland Protocol. We obviously know that there are ongoing discussions between the UK and the EU about potential changes. Um, and both sides initially set uh, an ambition to try and get an agreement before Christmas. But I think although it looks like talks are making progress, I think it doesn't look like we are close to a deal yet. There's still some outstanding negotiations on some of the aspects of agri-food checks and the role of the European Court of Justice and, and things like that. So I think we can now expect the discussions to run into, into the new year. And I've heard from a few sources closer to negotiations that I am that they are taking their leave. Um, so that, uh, that is certainly reassuring. I mean, the other thing that could possibly happen um, is around the UK government's threat to trigger Article 16 if it feels like it's not making progress on negotiations. But I think recently we've seen um, the UK government really row back from that threat and focus on trying to get a deal. I also think some of the turmoil that the Prime Minister might be facing in the next few weeks is also going to make him less likely to, to do anything drastic on UK-EU relations. Although some might argue um, if a dead cat doesn't work, then there might be the need for a dead tiger. Um, but all in all, I think we're safe. And do you share Jess's rather optimistic assessment that the row that might have been isn't going to happen in the run up to Christmas? Yeah, I think I do. I think, I mean, this is a pregnant pause Christmas in terms of Brexit, where we wait and hold our breath and see what happens in January. And, you know, all the signs are that something's happening, even if we're not entirely sure what. There was, for instance, that briefing that was all over Twitter from a UK government official saying, actually, you know what, people aren't out on the streets protesting about the ECJ in Northern Ireland. So the focus has got to be on the practical stuff, which was a massive change in tone. Whether we can take it seriously, I think we're going to have to wait till the new year to find out. 
So why do you think the government changed track on that? Because after all, you know, people frankly have never been out on the streets of Belfast protesting about the ECJ. Well, there's, I mean, two possible explanations spring to mind. One is that there has been a change in tone. It could be that sort of uh, less militant voices than Lord Frost have prevailed and said, come on, we need to make this work because we can't have this breaking down now. Or if you want to be more cynical about it, the government is backing down or appearing to back down on the court so that they can turn around in January and say, look, we made a massive concession. The EU haven't given us enough on the practical workings of the border, so we have no option but to trigger Article 16. So, Jess, if we're looking forward into the new year, does this sort of, you know, reduction in tension, uh, giving us a Northern Ireland Protocol Article 16 free Christmas at least, does that sort of suggest that they will do a deal in the new year or does it just suggest that they're keeping their powder dry because maybe the Prime Minister, new baby, whatever, actually doesn't want to be dealing with all of this over Christmas either? I think it's an interesting question. I think throughout this whole year throughout um, negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol, it's been a lot of focus on Lord Frost and his personal philosophy and what he wants um, and his approach um, to the Northern Ireland Protocol. But actually, as we pointed out several times, it's ultimately the Prime Minister that has to make this decision. And I think um, there's perhaps less appetite than there might have been um, earlier in the year for this big kind of argument with with the EU. I think there's a question about um, the Prime Minister's personal capital um, and whether there might be some objections to a kind of big fight um, with potential implications for, for the stability of, of Northern Ireland for those that don't take such a hard line. Um, so I think it's it's not clear exactly what will happen, particularly on the issue of the ECJ. We did see the UK government push back against some of those reports saying that it was going to, to, to drop that ask. So we'll just have to see what kind of happens um, in the coming weeks and months on that. But I think there is a sense that the UK government was always going to ask for more than it knew it could get. Um, and so I'm still optimistic for the prospect of a deal. OK, well, that's, that sounds like quite good news. And Anand, um, UK and Changing Europe published some quite interesting research recently on the attitudes of MPs uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol. What was your reading of that uh, for where the UK government might want to go next year? Well, the reading of that, the most interesting thing about that, I think, was the contrast with the work that Katie Hayward did, which is that support for the protocol amongst MPs in both the big parties was very, very low, though we can assume that that was for different reasons. Whereas actually what we're finding in Northern Ireland is that popular opinion is relatively happy with the protocol. And it might be that that sort of thing is starting to cut through. It might be that people in Northern Ireland are actually prevailing on the government and saying, look, as far as we're concerned, we need to make this work. Uh, I think it will be a first for uh, evidence to weigh on Brexit decisions taken in Whitehall. But you never know. Maybe it's the Christmas spirit. OK, right. Well, we've dealt with Northern Ireland, so... We're not too worried about Northern Ireland if we accept Jess and Anand's assessment there. Um, James, is fish a Christmas risk? Is there going to be a row on that? Or is that now settled or kicked into the long sea into the new year? I was quite worried it was going to be. But in the last just two or three days, it seems to have brightened up quite considerably. Uh, the Jersey and UK authorities have given some more fishing licenses to small French fishing boats to go and catch fish in their waters, uh, which means that the French government is no longer threatening a trade war, at least for now. So I think at least for at least for Christmas, we should be okay. It may well come back in the new year, 
uh, but our uh, Christmas fish should be pretty safe, uh, which I'm sure will comfort all those people in Eastern European countries where fish is the dish of Christmas Eve. And Anand, um, there were some suggestions that this was a bit of a sort of manufactured row by the French of President Macron, obviously facing re-election next year, trying to um, blow up sort of Brexit bogey people or whatever to make a bit of political capital in the north of France. Um, We now see that he's facing a quite viable challenger, I think, in the form of Valérie Pécresse. Um, Should we be expecting more Anglo-French blow-ups in the run-up to those May elections, or uh, is this now sort of moved on and moved over? I mean, I distinguish slightly between saying that the row itself was manufactured and the fact that President Macron has clearly decided that taking a fairly stern tone towards the UK is good politics. The second is definitely the case. The first, there, there does seem to have been a genuine issue. So I don't, I don't think it's fair to say that this was simply made up. But yeah, going forward, uh, there's no reason to think that this won't continue to be the case, that President Macron thinks that taking a firm line towards the UK is good politics. And before an election, there's only one thing a politician thinks about, which is good politics. So do we think fish will come back to haunt us in the new year or are there going to be other rounds about other things? Any Anywhere else we should be concerned? Uh, I think there's potential for bilateral blow-ups over foreign policy issues. I mean, if the, if the EU and UK responses to whatever happens in Ukraine differ, for instance, I think there is real scope for what would be very, very damaging diplomatic divergence between the two sides. And I hope that's something we can avoid, to be honest, but I wouldn't rule it out. And does it, does it matter that the French have the presidency starting in January? Does it matter for whom? Does it matter for for UK-EU relations? Are they likely to be more aggressive than if somebody else was the presidency? Or? Uh, I'm tempted to say not as much as some people seem to be claiming, simply because this uh, interaction between the, U- the UK and the EU has been very commission-led up to this point. I'm sure the French will have something to say. They might be slightly noisier. Uh, than previous presidencies. But I still think the Commission will manage to keep hold of the dossier as it has done pretty effectively through the whole process. Okay, so we're not worried about Northern Ireland, we're not worried about fish. But Joe, um, we've seen sort of, you know, some real supply crises in the past few months, whether they're due to Brexit or COVID. Um Will we actually get our turkeys onto our Christmas plates, those of us that maybe haven't sensibly ordered them and got a freezer packed full already? That's a very good question, Jill. Um, as you said, you know, supply chain disruption was a big problem a couple of months ago. I mean, it's off the news agenda now a little bit more, but it's still happening in the background. Um, as you alluded to, the causes are pretty complex and it's not all to do with Brexit. But one of the main issues for your Christmas turkey has been a shortage of workers. And here, Brexit is playing a part. Um, many turkey producers, but also you know, the agricultural food production sector more generally, as well as hospitality, used to rely quite heavily on EU labour. And post-Brexit, it is basically harder for them to get EU staff. The new sort of points-based immigration system doesn't provide an easy route because most people in working in sort of Turkey uh, production uh, don't meet sort of skills or uh, salary thresholds, for instance. And many EU nationals who were previously living in the UK and could have stayed under the EU settlement scheme 
uh, may have gone home during the pandemic and may not have returned. Some of them may have then lost their entitlements to come back. Um, the government has got things in place. You know, there are sort of a seasonal worker scheme, which allows uh, a certain number of people to come over and work in the agricultural sector. It's provided temporary visas for the poultry sector. But I think the upshot of all of this is that some turkey producers in particular have decided to produce less this year. Um, and I think in terms of whether or not you're going to be able to get your turkey on your plate, I mean, supermarkets are pretty confident there will be sufficient supply. They're very good at managing supply chains, as we've seen over the last couple of years during COVID. But I think the upshot is that we may actually end up seeing more turkeys imported from the EU to meet demand. And there may be potentially a little bit less choice over exactly what turkey you get. Um, so you know, Brexit is certainly part of a picture of why it might be harder to produce British turkeys this year. And I know only this morning, you know, Manette Batters from the National Farming Union was sort of flagging just how um, you know access to labour is a really big issue um, for the sort of farming sector with Brexit a primary cause. But now on top of that, we've also got you know, people isolating because of COVID, just making things even worse. So even with the revised COVID r- rules, we potentially have not exactly pandemic to, but Omicron, uh, Omicron disruptions due to thing. Of course, Anand, the government's been saying all along, hasn't it, that a lot of these disruptions that some sort of Brexit watchers, particularly people who perhaps supported Remain, have been saying, yeah, consequence of Brexit, consequence of Brexit, um, we told you so. The government's been saying, actually, these were, a lot of these were down to COVID. Where do you think the balance is? How much is it right to say that the supply disruptions that characterised the autumn were COVID-related and how much were sort of Brexit-related? Is it possible to distinguish between the two in any sensible way? I think if you tread very carefully, you can come to some cautious conclusions. The fact that uh, throughout the European Union, for instance, they didn't witness the the sort of petrol shortages that we saw here in September and October certainly points towards the fact that there was a Brexit element there that was quite significant. The fact that Northern Ireland didn't experience uh, those petrol shortages is perhaps the most telling bit of information of all. So it varies a lot by... Sector. I mean, the one interesting thing about the Brexit COVID thing, and we just did some polling with Redfield and Wilton, and the, the interesting thing there is that people seem to be judging the government on competence more and more. And that means that the same people who are giving a negative judgment on, to the government on COVID are also giving a negative judgment on Brexit. Uh, and that's what seems to be shifting at the moment is, for instance, I think about a month ago now, you go for the first time registered net disapproval of Boris Johnson's performance amongst Leave voters. And we haven't seen that before at all since he became Prime Minister. So there is a sense that even pro-Brexit people are starting to get a bit worried about how the various crises confronting us are being handled. So it's, it's less a case of COVID versus Brexit and more a question of overall competence now in the eyes of the public. Okay, so... We've looked at the immediate prospect, the run-up to Christmas, Brexit-free, turkeys on plates, fish, for those of you who prefer that as your Christmas dinner. Um, but I wanted now to look forward. Joe. Um, uh, the UK has sort of only really half implemented its border, I think, during 2021, or we have a rather sort of um, one-sided border with the EU moving straight to full controls and the UK delaying. Um, 
is this the sort of big thing that's going to dominate, if not Christmas, at least New Year, when the UK goes towards a fuller, fatter border? Yes. I mean, I'd probably say it's a bit strong to say it will dominate, but it's definitely a factor in the new year. So it may seem a bit odd, but you know, near, nearly a year after the end of a transition period, the UK's border isn't fully in place yet. And basically, the UK has phased in import controls on goods entering Great Britain from the EU. And from January, they're going to introduce full customs controls. And up until now, firms have been able to effectively defer doing customs declarations when they import goods and do things later on. And also any businesses importing agri-food products, so you know, animal and plant products, will also need to pre-notify them to UK authorities. And then from next July, we've got even more changes coming when most sort of agri-food goods will have physical inspections and have to be imported through specific border control posts. Basically, all of this is going to you know, make importing goods more bureaucratic and costly for firms you know it's new paperwork at the time of import and it's happening at a time when many firms are having to deal with you know pressures of staff absences or problems due to covid all these supply chain problems that we had talked about a little bit earlier i think it is really important to note though that for many large businesses have actually been fully complying with customs rules anyway and they've not taken up some of the easements that are in place so for them they might not see huge changes but I think the biggest pressure was likely to come for sort of smaller firms or some EU firms importing into, the, into Great Britain who may have you know, fewer resources dealing on with this on top of everything else at the same time. I mean, I think the government are pretty sanguine. They're not expecting, you know, dramatic cues. I mean, part of that is because I think they've already indicated they're going to take quite a proportionate approach to enforcement, you know, sort of. Uh, wrapping people on the knuckles if they get things wrong, at least initially, rather than going down in a sort of heavy-handed approach. Um, but it will be interesting to see what happens. And I think the final thing I'd just say is that all of these changes happening next year are on top of the sort of government's broader ambitions to have the world's most effective border by 2025, which will involve lots of IT changes, sort of streamlining how traders give information to government. All of these changes should actually make trade easier for firms in the long run, but it does present sort of a huge sort of delivery project for government over the next few years and does mean that there's going to be quite a few more changes at the border to come. Okay, so a bit of potential disruption there. But Anand, um, Joe was focusing very much on goods. Uh, but we know that the UK economy is predominantly a services economy, even if mm-hmm. you know, uh, some of our fellows who look at manufacturing might slightly say that we understate <laughs> the size of manufacturing uh, when we look at it. The trade and cooperation agreement was quite thin on services when it came down last year. But business groups like the CBI rather hoped that it could be built on during um, 2021 and maybe beyond. Is there much sign that there's been progress in building on the TCA to produce a better environment for UK services exports to recover? I mean, I suppose that answer comes in two parts. Firstly, to a limited extent, yes, if you think about the area of mutual recognition of qualifications, there's been some movement on that with some member states. The second part of the answer, I think, is we haven't yet become fully aware of the scale of the issue, simply because COVID has meant that people haven't been traveling. I mean, anecdotally from academic colleagues, I've just started to hear stories of people cancelling trips to go over and do teaching in uh, EU 
institutions because the paperwork was too onerous or because people actually in a couple of cases didn't know what paperwork they should be filling in and the host university couldn't help them because they haven't done it before. So I think as travel restrictions lift uh, and as service providers try to go over to the EU to sell their wares, that pressure will build, I think. Having said that, the insistence of the government and David Frost in particular on regulatory autonomy means I'm not particularly hopeful that we're going to do much in the way of building on the TCA in this area. So financial services equivalent, dead duck? Uh, Pretty dead. I mean, it's, you know, nine-tenths dead. We've got very, very limited areas of equivalence from the European Union now, very few signs that they intend to give us more. And I think the language from the Chancellor about exploiting regulatory autonomy is going to push the EU towards a harder rather than a softer line, would be my guess. Yeah, I would come on in a bit to uh, to where we might see some of the Brexit dividend being realised. But first, James, um, one of the big new freedoms has been on trade deals. We've had agreements in principle with Australia and New Zealand this year. We've had um, a digital services deal with Singapore came down just recently. But where are we? Sort of, will next year finally see the Liz Trust dream of UK accession to CPTPP um, realised? What's the prospects for trade next year? I think CPTPP, the prospects are not terrible. Uh, The UK had its first accession working group for CPTPP uh, back at the end of September, and I understand has now made initial offers uh, on things like tariffs. So the negotiations there are proceeding. Uh, A government official said uh, a couple of weeks ago to a Japanese newspaper that she expected negotiations to conclude next year. That might not actually happen, but it does suggest there's a real chance. I think the major obstacle on CPTPP is probably the other applications for membership that have been made since the UK uh, threw its hat into the ring, and in particular, the fact that both China and Taiwan have applied for membership. This doesn't necessarily squash the UK's application, uh, but it will be interesting to see how the existing TPP members work out how and who they want to let into the block next year. That's really interesting. And those Australian-New Zealand deals, um, will they be sort of, you know, signed, sealed and delivered early next year? What do we expect there? Well, if if they're not, then they'll be the most in principle agreed deals uh, that I think there have ever been. In fact, when the announcement of agreement in principle was was carried out, was made a couple of months ago in the case of New Zealand and, and in the summer in the case of Australia, I think pretty much everyone expected that it really would just be some tidying up around the edges, legal scrubbing, that sort of thing. It seems, particularly with Australia, that there's really been quite a lot more substantive uh, discussions following the agreement in principle than we perhaps expected, uh, which uh, does not say perhaps wonderful things about the government's propensity to have announcements rather than to actually uh, carry out the work and, and get things done. And what about the Singapore deal? Is that important or is under the radar? It's interesting. And certainly digital trade is a major thing to look at going forward. I would expect the UK to be uh, looking to sign more digital agreements in future, even where it does have free trade agreements and especially where it doesn't. I don't think it will do anything concrete on the ground because the barriers to digital trade at the moment are 
really quite limited. Uh, often what these agreements do, and sometimes what you find in agreements like the TPP or the UK's agreement with Japan, is, for instance, to ban customs duties on uh, imports of digital products. Now, in fact, no one has ever imposed a customs duty on an import of digital products. So it's not really resolving barriers that already exist. It's more setting up a framework for cooperation in the future in the hope that going forward as digital becomes a more and more important part of our economies, uh, that we'll be able to avoid some of the frictions that have occurred in relation to more conventional trade in the past. Oh, that's quite interesting, though. So this is an area where the UK does seem to be striking out with like-minded partners a bit as per the sort of Brexit promise. But Joe, um, Annan mentioned the UK government's emphasis on regulatory autonomy that clearly was the motivation behind the sort of TCA we got and after all the Northern Ireland Protocol that this government signed up to rather than one that kept us aligned with the EU. Um, Lord Frost, who we a few times, is topping the near at the top of those Conservative home polls of Conservative ministers uh, with approval ratings among Conservative members that the Prime Minister could only dream of at the moment. He's champing at the bit to deliver on Brexit opportunities. What are we going to see next year in the shape of those materialising? Have they really got good ideas to back up the rhetoric? Yes, so I think you're right, Jill. The government's clearly very keen to sort of demonstrate a Brexit dividend and sort of make good on the promises made during the campaign. I mean, I think you know, ministers like Lord Frost already point to some areas where things are changing or have changed. You know, they point to the UK's points-based immigration system, the new subsidy control regime, the fact they're putting in place a new agricultural support system to replace the common agricultural policy. And we've also had a bit of low-hanging fruit this year, sort of plans to change the Weights and Measures Act to allow goods to be sold only in imperial measurements. Um, And the government is looking at reform in areas like gene editing, data protection, uh, financial services, as Anand alluded to earlier. Uh, And some of those suggestions build on the sort of aptly named uh, TIGA report or the Task Task Force for Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, which was carried out by a group of Conservative backbenchers earlier this year. And another part of the government's sort of Brexit dividend agenda is sort of trawling through this body of EU law that was effectively copied and pasted onto the UK statute book at the end of a transition period um, and looking at what of that they want to change, how it can be, how it is interpreted by the courts in the UK. And I think that's much to the concern of many lawyers who think it's a recipe for legal uncertainty. But I think what is really interesting about the scope of the government's Uh, sort of Brexit dividend agenda and things to look out for next year is that, you know, the agenda sits with Lord Frost in Cabinet Office and it's very clear from what he said in various speeches and to parliamentary committees that he takes a pretty expansive view of Brexit dividends, that it's very much not about looking for specific individual EU rules where we couldn't do things when we were in the EU and now we can do things differently. But I think he sees it very much as sort of a reset moment for sort of economic policy more generally, sort of a mindset shift in how we think about regulation and regulating the economy um, in sort of how we make the UK more competitive and fit for sort of the economy of the future. And I think it will be really interesting to watch how that plays out, particularly how it plays out within government, whether this sort of looks a little bit like empire building from Lord Frost and how that plays out with the Treasury and others in government who will be operating in this space. Um, but I think, you know, we have got some some Brexit dividends underway, some things already happening. And I think there is more to come, lots of consultations, lots of work going on. So it will start to become clearer, I think, over the next year or so. 
Maybe the Prime Minister's a bit relieved that Lord Frost is a peer and therefore, at least according to conventions, can't be Prime Minister, but conventions, as we know, are there to be broken. Anand, um, is this agenda what Brexit voters, that odd coalition the Prime Minister assembled almost exactly two years ago, is this what they're all waiting with bated breath for? Are they on the same page as Lord Frost here? Some of them are, some of them aren't. I mean, that's the problem. It's actually trying to find an agenda that will appeal to all Brexit voters, apart from the obvious one of leaving the European Union, uh, is is very, very hard indeed. Uh, and actually, being perhaps slightly more cynical than Joe, I was thinking when he was speaking that the, the other alternative in terms of Lord Frost is that this is performative, that this is sort of setting himself up as the champion of a deregulatory agenda that actually he thinks is never really going to get through. But for his, you know, his his own future, if he sets himself up as the champion of that wing of the party, then that might be quite useful. Because actually, to date, you hear a lot of fine rhetoric, and we've heard it about retained EU law, we've heard it about regulatory opportunities, precious little in the way of detail. And a lot of the stuff being talked about is, I mean, to put it politely, a bit of a punt, isn't it? Which is, here's a new sector of the economy that no one's really regulated before, we're pinning our hopes and our ability to regulate it first and indeed best to gain some kind of first mover advantage and early investments into those sectors in this country while the EU dithers. And, you know, it, that might come off, but it's far from certain that it will. So is the UK actually sort of, you know, behind the scenes, just sort of staying aligned with EU law? Um, uh, or is it actually diverging not because of things we're doing but because of things the EU's doing this is to plug our divergence tracker at UK and Changing Europe and, and if you hadn't spotted that well done Jill even I had spotted that and even I was going to mention it and it's worth mentioning the fact that Joel Roland has done a fantastic job putting it together uh, and what he finds is that it is often what the EU does that is as important in this regard as what we do, because the forgotten element of divergence isn't the sort of grand deregulatory agenda that many Conservative MPs have been fond of talking about. It's the fact that the EU changes its regulations, and that immediately has enormous implications for businesses here who are trading with them. And here, I think we just need to be a bit careful that someone somewhere in Whitehall and someone in government is keeping an eye on this, because you know, divergence when we don't want it is perfectly likely to happen and will have real world implications on trade and on businesses. So just one of the uh, one of the places where that does have implications potentially is obviously on Northern Ireland, which is in a rather different position with EU law. Uh, we started with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but I wanted to sort of dial back to where things are going generally. Um, Edwin Poots was on the radio this morning, Tuesday, uh, saying that the threat to collapse the executive was still there. We have assembly elections uh, scheduled for, um, I think, May 2022 in Northern Ireland. What's what's happening on the ground in Northern Ireland? Uh, Is the assembly about to collapse, the executive about to go? So I think the threat from the DUP is is still there. Um, I think um, a lot of people, and I'm going to plug our Northern Ireland uh, politics, the View from Northern Ireland podcast from the IFG um, that we recorded several months ago, um, is that Jeffrey Donaldson has an interest in being um, first minister potentially, or certainly in Stormont. And for that to happen, um, he that Stormont needs to be standing. So I think um, people 
although the threat is obviously still there and the DUP is still talking about it, I don't think people are expecting that the Assembly will collapse before the election. Um, I think the harder question is what happens after the election. If you look at some of the polls in Northern Ireland, and it is worth saying that um, you know, there's only one polling company in in Northern Ireland, so there isn't perhaps um, the kind of margins of error that we that we might have here. Um, but certainly, it looks like Sinn Fein are on course to win the first minister position um, in in the elections, whether they happen um, in May or before. And then there's a real question there about whether um, the DUP, assuming they are um, the the largest party of the other other designation, will take that position. Because if we remember, Northern Ireland has this power sharing system um, in which there have to be um, a unionist and nationalist first minister and deputy first minister and who gets to take one which spot um, depends on um, who wins the most um, the most votes. Um, so there's some some questions there about the stability of the executive um, going forward. But um, I think we'll just have to wait and see what happens in May. And what about Scotland? Is this the year in which the SNP finally, finally, finally get their demand for another legal referendum or...? So certainly um, the SNP manifesto was very clear that they wanted to hold a second independence referendum and the manifesto itself committed to holding that to asking for the power to hold that vote once the pandemic was over. Now, with the Omicron virus and um, train of the virus and, and things going forward, it's not clear when the pandemic will be said to be over. Um, on one hand, I think Nicola Sturgeon is going to want to be very careful to avoid accusations that she's focusing on constitutional politics rather than recovering um, from, from COVID. But at the same time, she's going to be under pressure from people in her party who are growing a bit impatient, who want to see movement on the second independence referendum um, issue. So I think we'll see a request to hold that vote sometime this year. Um, The big question then is how the UK government responds. It's unlikely that they are just going to turn around and say, yes, that's fine. Hold your referendum. It might be that we see something um, ending up in the courts, um, potentially if the Scottish Parliament tries to pass legislation to hold a referendum without the approval of Westminster. So I think that could be a big topic um, for next year and, and the next big constitutional question for the UK. And with all this action in Northern Ireland and Scotland, um, are relations with Wales just going to uh, glide on serenely? We now have Labour with an agreement with Plaid uh, to support them in government. Um, is that going to make any sort of difference? Um, potentially. I mean, so the Welsh government has this brand of very pro-devolution unionism. So they they're want to remain part of the UK, but they, they think that devolution is very important and they see the current UK government as threatening some of their devolved powers. So we think increasingly we've seen this slightly acrimonious relationship um, with between the Welsh government and the UK government, although potentially not quite as acrimonious as the UK's um, government's relationship with, with Scotland. Um we know that the, the Welsh Government has a big constitutional reform agenda. They're launching this constitutional commission about changes that they might want to see about how the way that the, that the UK is run. On one hand, I think the elections um, last, last May were an endorsement of the Welsh Government's current position, this sort of middle ground, pro-devolution, pro-union. Um, so they're not under a huge amount of pressure to be more nationalist like they might have been had Plaid done, done better in those elections. But certainly the constitution is going to be a big issue on the Welsh Government's agenda. And I think we spoke a bit earlier about some of the challenges of new trade deals um, and some particular concerns in the farming sector. That's something um, the Welsh Government is, is very hot on 
There's uh, a lot of farmers in Wales. Um, and so we might see some some fallouts between the Welsh government and the UK government on, on that. And Anand, um, the Prime Minister will want to talk about levelling up. That's, after all, one of his um, priorities. But is he going to actually be having to spend much more of his time next year looking at the union and keeping together as opposed to his levelling up agenda? Well, yes, he's obviously going to have big issues in Northern Ireland and Scotland, as we've just heard. I mean, rather cynically, I think that the sweet spot for the SNP is to have requested a, a referendum and been refused one, which allows sort of resentment to build up north on the border. Where is border. where is support for independence at the moment? Is it sort of, it was reached a sort of high watermark, didn't it, of sort of high 50s? Has it has it receded a bit since? Yeah, I think, uh, I haven't looked for a while, but it had come down from there. I think we're sort of 52, 48, or maybe that's another referendum I'm thinking about. <laughs> uh, uh, so it's definitely come down from that high point uh, during the, I think was that the sort of second half of 2020, if I remember rightly. It's not there anymore. And I think Nicola Sturgeon's inherently cautious. I mean, if I, if I were to consult the sage of all things politics, Dominic Cummings on Twitter, uh, he was saying recently that the SNP have made it clear in private to the UK government that they're in no rush for a referendum. But I do think they want, you know, it's it's good politics for the SNP, for the government in London to be refusing what they're arguing is the democratic right of the Scottish people to have that vote. And bear in mind, of course, that the that the levelling up agenda is partly a devolution agenda as well. I mean, it's a devolution within England. There's been a lot of rumour about the uh, long-awaited levelling up white paper that it's going to involve a shake-up to local government and can take your pick of which which leak about it you choose to believe. So there is a devolution aspect of that as well. So it'll be interesting to see the degree to which the government tries to portray that whole piece as a whole. So we're not we're dealing with levelling up is the way to dealing with Scotland as well. It'll be interesting if they manage to do that. Uh, but of course there is the reality as well of the, the sort of economics of levelling up. And you know, to put it brutally, it's very hard to see what can be done between now and the next general election, short of what Michael Gove called sugar rush uh, levelling up, which is, you know, token improvements in some of these places, whether it's improvements to sort of litter collection or parks or high streets. Actually, it's not tokenistic. It's more than that, but not the sort of long-term structural stuff that most sort of economists who look at this sort of thing are thinking of when they hear the term levelling up. My suspicion in a lot of these places actually is that the kind of sugar rush approach might be quite successful because these are places that haven't seen the hand of government helping them out for an awfully long time. And even small improvements, I think, could be quite uh, impactful. And I do remember when I was at DEFRA that we were always a bit frustrated that uh, that actually things like litter, quality of the public realm generally mattered enormously to people when we were sort of keen for people to be targeting things like action on climate change and yeah. stuff like that. So just a quick through all our panel before we move on to our, our ending. Um, relations between the UK and the EU by this time next year, assuming Boris Johnson is still prime minister... Um, not going to go into too many complicated scenarios. Better or worse, Joe? Um, I'm going to stick with a the theme of being optimistic, which may be misplaced, but I'm going to say better, partly because some of the processes and systems in the relationship, you know, the committees under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, some of these parts of the governance have only just started to get going really in the latter half of this year and hopefully if used well and in good faith by both sides might provide some forums to sort of chat things through 
discuss issues and resolve them in a more technical level rather than things escalating as we have seen in fish. But um, don't hold me to it, Jill. James, UK, EU, better or worse end of next year? I think about the same. I think the, the, the kind of texture of the relationship at the moment is very much like the way it will probably be going forward. You'll have frictions. They will shift from area to area. Some, sometimes it'll be Northern Ireland. Sometimes it'll be foreign policy. Sometimes it'll be fish. Uh, and when one becomes less tense for a while, another one will emerge. And I suspect it will be like that going forward pretty much indefinitely. Um, the EU's got fairly tense relationships with quite a lot of countries on its borders, and the UK looks set to be one of them. Jess, union stronger or weaker by the end of next year? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think quite possibly it could be looking a bit more fragile. Um, I think there are some questions about, about the stability of the Northern Ireland executive. There's obviously this question around independence in Scotland. Um, as Anna said, um, I think the government's resting a lot on this kind of levelling up union strategy. Um, but it's worth remembering that the devolved administrations themselves are very unhappy with the UK government's approach here. So whether um, that will be a successful strategy in which the UK government will convince the voters of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland that remaining part of the UK is in their interest or whether they'll actually just annoy the Scottish Welsh, um, Scottish and Welsh governments and, and the Northern Ireland executive and therefore drive um, some of this nationalist sentiment. We'll just have to wait and see. And Anand, heading for a 2023 election with Johnson riding high or uh, playing it long to 2024? Blimey. Uh, I'm hard pressed to predict what's going to be happening next week at this moment in time. Uh, I find it unlikely that Johnson's going to be riding high either way. Uh, that being said, there's always been that argument that actually some of the sort of post-Brexit economic effects might really start taking hold by 2024. So maybe we're thinking sort of September, October 23, after the boundary changes uh, and sort of not leaving it as late as they possibly could. I think actually Northern Ireland is going to be pretty key to all of this in the sense that if you do get a breakdown of the Assembly again, that could impact on all sorts of things, not least on our relationship with the European Union. So that's certainly something to watch. But the one thing in terms of UK-EU relations I would say is I suspect by this time next year, it might become quite clear to the government that simply stoking rows with the European Union is no longer good politics. Because having come to power on the slogan of getting Brexit done, continuing to bang on about Brexit thereafter is not proving to be as electorally effective as I think some in government thought it would be. That's a very interesting point. And that would be a good point to end. But uh, Anand, uh, since we've invited you into the IFG virtual studio for this unique one-off occasion, we thought we'd try and make sure that it was only a one-off occasion <laughs> by uh, UK and Changing Europe have established a tradition of organising a fiendish quiz for the mass ranks of pundits and diplomats. Quizzes seem to be a bit of a theme at the moment, but I am assured that no rules have ever been broken by this quiz. There are a lot of reputations. Yes, Peter Foster, I mean you, have been broken uh, <laughs> as the limits on their knowledge have been exposed. So Team IFG thought that they would get some revenge by asking you one or two questions. Oh, so I'm just going to see how you do with these. 
Okay, the UK-EU relationship uh, went into a bit of a cold freeze relatively shortly after the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was signed uh, when the EU briefly appeared to be contemplating triggering Article 16 over vaccines. When was that? Uh, uh, I'm surely not alone in having lost all sense of time during lockdown. Uh, I've got the precise date. but well, I'll precise you. date. Okay, hang on. Let me when? come up with a pre- uh, February the 23rd. Okay, 29th of January. Next. Well, that's um, within a month, so I'm having half a point. <laughs> uh, fisheries has become a key flashpoint in the UK-EU relationship, was discussed earlier. But... Under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, from what year will the UK and the EU begin annual negotiations on the total allowable catch? 24. 26. Okay, two years longer to wait. Annual negotiations will also commence that year on another policy area included in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Which one? Patrick Bamford. Uh, Okay, and last question. Uh, That was energy. In the budget, the Chancellor proposed three tax reforms he claimed he could do because the UK was now outside the EU. What were they? Oh, my hatred knows no bounds. (laughs) Do all you lot know? No, that one. That's easy. That's the easy one. Free ports? Um, Something around free ports? Uh, well, he'd done that earlier, but they were air passenger duty, tonnage oh, tax and alcohol duty reform, though it's not clear whether he can do that in Northern Ireland. Oh, God, anyway. Joelle, I'm so, so sorry. You could have told me that. <laughs> Joelle did a brilliant thread on that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so finally, yeah. we're all predicting... Traditionally, uh, he- we have a Leeds United round, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> Traditionally, the quiz isn't set by you, Anand. Um <laughs> So moving moving finally on, um, Joe and James, what present do you think Maris Shevkovich, David Frost's opposite number, should give him for Christmas to ensure that relations maybe get a bit more harmonious next year? Should I kick off, Jill? Yeah. Well, I think Christmas is always a time for sort of games. So I was thinking either a game of, of booking Bronco or Jenga. So basically a failed reminder that, you know, fragile things can break if you push them too far. Oh, good Jenga <laughs> reference. James, any ideas for the presence there? Uh, well, Mr. Shevchevich is, I believe, a Slovak. And I think uh, over there, uh, the traditional uh, Christmas lunch is a live carp. So that might be uh, <laughs> quite a, a nice thing, if provided you can get it through the uh, UK's new SPS controls. Yeah, I think a mouldering carp would not be a particularly welcome gift, but maybe very symbolic. Um, Jess and Anand, think about the reciprocation. What should Lord Frost give his uh, EU oppo? So I think um, what uh, Marosevkovic would really like is for the UK to drop um, its demand for the ECJ to have no role in the protocol. But if Lord Frost is acting in his own interest, I think what he could um, give uh, Mr Shevkovic is a British sausage. As we'll remember, there was a big argument about whether British sausages are allowed to be sold in Northern Ireland or indeed the rest of the EU. So... If Lord Frost was, oh, sorry, if Lord Frost gave one um, and Chef Butcher was able to try it, then maybe he would be so convinced about about the need um, for it to be uh, freely transported across the world that he would have to eat it within within Great Britain at this at the, this moment in time. Okay, and Anand, 
final glass with the crown stamp on it <laughs> brilliant Okay, great. Thank you all very much and thank everybody. Uh, just a reminder, this was IFG Live and Brexit and Beyond. If you subscribe to Brexit and Beyond but not IFG Live, do check out the IFG website for more great podcast concept, content to make your Christmas holiday go that bit quicker. If you're an IFG Live subscriber, but are missing out on Brexit and beyond, there you can hear really, really interesting chats with leading academics about Brexit, but lots more than Brexit too. And finally, from all of us in IFG and at UK in a Changing Europe, can I wish you a very, very happy Brexit-free Christmas and a nicely harmonious New Year. Thank you very much. <laughs>